what talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it's Friday. So let's turn it over to Duff McKagan and the joke of the week. Hey, Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling. Uh, listen, do you know why you shouldn't ever brush your teeth with your left hand? Because a toothbrush works much better. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> Leave it to Duff. He's never failed to deliver yet on a Friday for over four years, and we thank him for that. Thankful for Duff this Thanksgiving, and thanks for everyone who took advantage of the pre-booking sale for Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea, the Four Leaf Clover, setting sale March 14th from Miami to Nassau. We are now publicly on sale. ChrisJerichoCruise.com to book your cabin. Join us for the vacation of a lifetime. Are you kidding me? Chris Jericho, All Elite Wrestling, Mark Henry, Mickey James, Gallows and Anderson, Brad Williams, Mick Foley, Nick Aldis, Moose, Brutus Beefcake, King Haku, Mike Rotunda, Dan Lambert, Jordan Grace, Swoggle, Matt Cardona, Brian Myers, Jonathan Gresham, Rocky Romero, Yuya Yumura, Arian Andrew, uh, Boogeyman, ODB, World Famous CB, Fozzie, Quiet Riot, Royal Bliss, Raven, the world's greatest female kiss tribute band, Chris, Quarantine. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com and join us for the vacation of a lifetime. And come rock with us with Fozzie if you're in the UK. The European leg of Fozzie Save the World Tour kicks off November 29th in Liverpool. The famous Cavern Club where the Beatles got their start. They've played it 292 times. We've been there once. Cavern Club sold out. Manchester sold out. Glasgow sold out. Dublin sold out. Chester, Swansea, uh, Nottingham, London all sold out. Tickets only left right now for Newcastle. Belfast, Birmingham, and Bournemouth. You can get those at uh, FozzyRock.com. Don't forget about the Save the World Tour U.S. leg. We're back out in April and May going all across the states, including the Irving Plaza in New York City and the Whiskey in Los Angeles. FozzyRock.com for all tickets and VIP info. All right, the info in today's talk is Jericho is all about cryptozoology, paranormal, old school, medieval legends. I got Scott and Forrest from the Astonishing Legends podcast to tell us all about the beast of Jevoudan with a, this a cryptic beast that attacked and killed people in rural French province in the 1700s back in France. Survivors at the time described it as a giant wolf-like creature with glowing red eyes that hunted and killed women and children for sport and was virtually impossible to kill. Scott and Forrest tell us all about the true story of the beast and the four years of sheer terror it brought to the French region of mostly poor peasant farmers. You hear details about his first known attack, stories from those who were able to fend it off, and the many who were sent to try and capture and kill it, including the team sent by French King Louis XV. I guess it'd be Louis. You also hear the mysterious tale of who finally brought the beast down and what it took to do it. I'll tell you this, it involved silver bullets and religion. Does that sound familiar? You know what we're getting at here. We'll get to the true story of this cryptid werewolf-like beast with Scott and Forrest from the Astonishing Legends podcast. It's the beast of Jevoudan now on Talk is Jericho. All right, so always looking for uh, new topics and new people to talk to about zoology and about the supernatural and paranormal as you know here on talk is jericho and i stumbled upon scott and forrest and astonishing legends is their uh podcast and did we become friends over twitter is that how it happened i don't even remember well uh how it kind of came about is that we're actually 
Twitter friends with one of your guests uh, and friends, Joe Sills. Uh, oh, uh, right. Travel reporter. But it was, it's really through another friend, Bradley Netherton, who has the Coal Shacks Loop podcast. And we've become friends with him. He's he's come on some of our shows uh, on Fireside on that platform. And he's the one who noticed, uh, it, you know, knows there could be a potential hookup. So he, he put us in touch uh, or tweeted out to, I think, your producer and you. And you you noticed us, so and here we are. <laughs> and here we are. Yeah, Joe was uh, here to talk about the Mothman, yeah. and you yeah. guys uh, just to, to to kind of get a little bit of background. How long has your podcast been going, and what made you decide to start a a show called Astonishing Legends? Uh, you know, our our show is um, almost seven years old now. And we started, I guess we mostly start, I used to edit television commercials and uh, I had taken a little break to, uh, to be a stay at home dad. And when that was, my son started getting into school and everything, I was like, I got to go back to work, but I didn't want to go back to uh, advertising. And I was like, you know what, let's start a show. Forrest and I were friends. We love talking about this kind of stuff. We had no idea if it would work or ever generate any income, which it didn't for the first year and a half. And, you know, next thing you know, now we're, it's, we're 87 million downloads later. And that's great. Just, yeah. It's our full-time gig now so that's amazing and that's the cool thing like for me as well talk is jericho we just had our 800th episode and our eighth wow. year anniversary <laughs> uh, and we came into it much like you guys did back before there was literally a million podcasts plus yeah. in the world so that kind of helped uh create a good fan base and of course your uh your demo was very specific so it's a smart move for you guys to have started when you did. Yeah, we're we're lucky. I don't know if we could especially being independent, I don't know how we would even get noticed now. It's right. it's a lot harder, you know, and we're such a, we're in a niche and that niche at the time that wasn't super popular, there's a lot of shows in it now, so you have to stay on your toes and evolve, you know, but also keep the stuff that people like. So that's the trick, you know. Well, um and people do like this subject here on Talk is Jericho. It's been part of the show since I started. So when we started uh, talking to each other, I, I asked you guys to send me a list of, of topics of interesting subjects. And, you know, we've all talked about Bigfoot and, and you mm-hmm. know, Mothman, like I mentioned, and, and UFOs and all that sort of thing. But you guys sent me a list. And the one that stood out to me that I hadn't heard of, which is rare because I'm, I've been reading about all of this since I was a kid, is the beast of lay it on me, Scott? Jevoudon. Jevoudon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we practice yeah. that a lot. That's a that the beast of Jevoudon. So obviously, or if you want to go full French, la bête du Jevoudon. There you go. And this so this yeah. is a, obviously <laughs> a creature from France. Um, but tell us a little bit how you got into this subject and what exactly we're dealing with here, and then we'll get into the long. Uh, history and legend of the beast of Gévaudan. Well, you know, we we're always we love to look at cryptids, and I, I noticed too in your that you had Lauren Coleman on your show at I one did. point, which is amazing. He is the the king of all that stuff. Um, very he is cool. the king of cryptozoology, and he was on very early on. He might have been my my first or second paranormal guest, so to speak. Great, great, great guy. That's really cool. We've interacted with him on Twitter, and I've actually been wanting to go to his museum, and COVID has been in the way, so like, it's, uh, that's just amazing. But, you know, it was a topic that came up for us a lot of times. We're a little bit hand-to-mouth. We have this long list of things, but when it comes time to do a new show, we also, there's a little bit of us just having a conversation and trying to see what catches. And there was something about this story uh, which you'll find out as, as we get into it. Uh, it, it, just the nature of it, the, the number of casualties and fatalities, the brutality of it, uh, the fact that it's so well documented. It's not just like, you know, we, we've done, we've covered the Pied Piper of Hamlin too. You got that story. It's very like apocryphal. There's, you know, not a lot of written records. This story, there's all kinds of people like, nope, this happened. 
A lot of people died. We still aren't sure what it was. And that's always yeah. really intriguing to us. Unlike other cryptid stories, uh, yeah, this happened a while ago. So you're talking about the, uh, the late 1700s. But there was enough good records kept and enough people saw this thing. Uh, you're talking hundreds of people seeing this thing over a period of a few years that good descriptions were kept and people survived attacks. So they saw it up close. And this is what I love about it is that, you know, a lot of people will try to place this into a kind of a mundane thing. Well, it was just a, a rabid wolf or uh, it was an escaped lion or whatever it was. The people from that time were peasants and farmers mostly in the area. It was a very rural area of France and they know their animals and they know what's out in the wild. They know it's domesticated. They've seen everything. That's their business. That's their livelihood. They, yeah, and that's one of the things that bugs me the most about when you're covering a cryptid. There's always this assumption that the locals don't know what they're looking at. It's like they lived there their whole lives. Right. They know what's in the woods. Yeah. You know, they don't get confused by by the regular stuff. Yeah, and when you hear the descriptions we're going to talk about, you it doesn't fit neatly into any one category. Yes, it's it it's more canine-like, but... The descriptions of it just defy imagination at the time and now. And so all we're left with here is that uh, it, it just doesn't add up to any one thing that somebody nowadays can say like, well, there you go. It's probably this. But uh, of course, that's what people want to do. But that's why I love it as a cryptid is that it's a real thing. Uh, it's terrifying. It really happened. Uh, it it uh, happened over several years. And there were a lot of victims to this thing. And it was, it was horrific at the time. But what we're left with is a very real legend that sounds like a fairy tale it's interesting to me whenever we talk about cryptids and and uh for those who are just getting into this a cryptid obviously is is a creature um that's i don't know the exact definition but it's basically a creature that's not the normal if you're talking about you know the Loch Ness monster or bigfoot or the beast of javelin it's a cryptid it's not accepted into the normal realm of of of, of zoology shall we say is that correct to, to description here yeah, that's very that's very correct. It, it's an unknown it's an unknown animal, and the people take different approaches to it. Uh, some folks just say, you know what, this is something that somehow survived, or it's a chimera, or it's something crossbred, and we just don't know about it. Other people will say, oh, it's paranormal. It's that's why we haven't heard about it. And then there's folks that say that there are things in this category that fall into both. And it's funny because I I know that you have uh, talked about talk about Bigfoot, for example. There's folks that like, okay, that's just a, an unknown primate. Uh, well, of course, there's folks that like it doesn't exist, but then there's folks that are like it's an unknown primate, and then there's other folks that are like uh, it's an interdimensional being. Yes, it, you know, can do whatever it wants. It appears it, and uh, disappears. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And our, our friend uh, Rob Christopherson has a show called Our Strange Strange Skies. He talks about UFOs and stuff. We were talking to him just yesterday. Uh, we did a show with him, and he 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 would shared some event with us where this Bigfoot came up and it lifted its hair up on its body, and a car engine died. I was <laughs> it's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the reality is, you know, even when you look at this, you don't know uh, what these things necessarily are. But animals that were thought to be extinct are being discovered all the time. Right. So there's there's a lot of that going on. Of course, back at this uh, this time period, you know, there was no Internet. It, it, you could have had some creature, and we can talk about that a little bit, that, that just happened to wind up in the wrong continent that those people had never seen before. Except, yeah, I would say, as we'll hear from some of the descriptions, when people tried to kill this thing, it did not die easy. Uh, right. Or maybe at all. Uh, we don't really know. There's a storyline to this, and of course, the attack stopped at some point, but the way that people described it when, when it was uh, shot or stabbed, and it just, uh, it acted like it was hurt, and then it ran away, 
like it well it was almost like it was bulletproof in a sense and and that's also what i love it that this thing kind of dips into maybe werewolf territory or skinwalker territory uh it's not just uh some strange animal that uh maybe a, a deformed uh creature or something that was a, a hybrid of of two different animals that could possibly breed it had some supernatural aspects to it and you can say well Maybe that was just the imagination of the time. People are very scared. They're just making stuff up. Plus, uh, we'll take a look at kind of the first true crime reporting that was happening, at least in Europe at the time, and how that blew the story up. But there are some details that a lot of people agree with that weren't talking to each other that seem to match, and it makes this beast even more magical than you would expect. Well, we'll get into the whole history, but the last thing I was going to say before is that it, it, you guys touched on this. But it happens quite often when we deal with cryptids in that people kind of have a, a, a holier than thou kind of looking down their nose like, oh, stupid villagers or whatever it may be. But like yeah. you said, these yes. people live here and these are now, like you mentioned, documented tales. These people aren't stumbling, bumbling idiots. It's like, well, it's probably just a bear. I know what a bear looks like. I know <laughs> yeah. what a lion looks like. I know what, yeah. a, what, a, what a black panther looks like. Yeah. This is not any of these things. No. And if, if my friend Joe and my friend Pierre and my friend, you know, Harry all feel the same way, suddenly we're not idiots. You have to take it more seriously. Yeah. And on top of that, if they could talk across time, they would say, by the way, it's a hell of a lot harder to stay alive back here in the past than it is for you guys now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But Chris, you, you hit on a, an anecdote I love to tell, uh, especially about the Yeti in the uh, Himalayas. And that uh, this is for a documentary where... Uh, uh, guy is probably in his 50s who was talking about an elder like a grandfather uh or a great great uncle of his uh this would be back in the 60s and they took him to the bronx zoo i believe it his first trip to the united states probably first trip uh outside of uh, nepal and they they take him to the zoo and they show him a brown bear in the cage and they say see sir that's that's a yeti right that's what a yeti is it's a bear and he's like no 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 that's a bear and like, okay, okay, well, maybe you don't know what you're talking about. And then they get to the gorilla cage and it goes, there, there, that's that's what a Yeti looks like. That thing in there, that is what a Yeti looks like. It's not a bear. So don't don't tell the guy who's who's lived right. there. They're, they're people who have lived there for 500 years. They, they know what the animals are when they come across something that's different. They know what it is, uh, or at least they they are used to it. And they know the, the calls of it. They know the tracks. Uh, it's just very elusive. And so uh, you're exactly right. And some of the uh, analyses of authors and researchers about the uh, the Beast of Gévaudan, they want to say, well, you know, there are all these cultural factors and political factors uh, that really influence the stories. And that's true. That does shade the stories. But at the core of it, you have a lot of reports that were taken by the officials at the time. That would be the local parish priest because people would come in and they're reporting their loved ones being murdered and, and getting disappeared. And then they would take into accounts uh, and a lot of these things matched up. So they were describing a lot of the same things about this very weird looking beast that was also massive. That's the other thing is that it was described as being the size of a calf or a donkey. And that's a lot larger than any abnormal wolf. But was it a lion? Well, we don't we don't know. It'd be very unusual. And certainly we think everything's possible in some respect, but not the way they're describing it. Plus, the behavior of it is very strange. 
let's delve in this. Let's, let's kind of start at the beginning of the tale of the Beast of Javadon. Okay. Well, uh, it starts off in uh, just a warning to you uh, and your your fans in the U.S. and the French-Canadian fans. There's going to be a lot of French terms that we're going to mangle and butcher, and, <laughs> uh, pun intended. Uh, so uh, thanks for putting up with us. But uh, yeah, so the, uh, the Beast of Javadon... Uh, or as Scott said, Le Bête du Gévaudan, and of course, uh, to us, it looks like uh, Gay Vaudan. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, this refers to a spree of mysterious and really horrific, gruesome attacks on the residents of a former province of France in the Mangeride Mountains. And so at the time, it was described by eyewitnesses and some survivors, because uh, some people did survive these attacks, during the years of 1764 and 1767, uh, coming from some kind of unknown canine-like predator. And it was described then as uh, either a very large wolf or very large dog or a hybrid of the two. Uh, one witness uh, or, or several said its head was like a large pig's or boar's head. That's pretty unusual. And there was either just one of these things or several acting in concert or a pack of them. Because the territory was so large, people were wondering, like, how is one creature getting to all these different places in a day? Yes, uh, and only one was ever seen at a time. That's yeah. important. It, yeah, exactly. yeah only, there was no photos, of course, but they were never, yeah. no, two were not seen in the same photo at once. So uh, it, it, in some respects, the canine uh, predator, whatever this thing was, acted like uh, a lot of canine predators and that it went for the neck and the head and it usually uh, attacked its victims by ripping their necks out or uh, some of these victims had their heads gnawed off or were only partially eaten. So keep in mind that also does not sound like a hungry animal. Uh, It sounds like something that's killing for sport. So as news of the attack spread, people from all walks of French society joined in a hunt to stop this monster. And this is another interesting aspect of this tale is that it's not just, as you said, you know, ignorant villagers, uh, royal huntsmen, soldiers, noblemen, uh, along with the ordinary peasants. They all joined in the chase for this thing. And then the news had, about this beast had grown so large that it even reached the king of France's palace in Versailles. And there were large sums of money and resources that were allocated to stopping this thing because, you know, you wonder, well, why would the royalty care about a handful of peasants in the mid-1700s? Because it wasn't just a handful of people. Get this. There are, of course, widely varying estimates about the total number of victims, but uh, from accounts at the time and modern day estimates, uh, some sources say as many as 60 to 100 adults and children were killed wow. uh, with over 30 people being injured. Uh, one source says over 100 people uh, were killed in Jeboudan in this three-year period. And one report from 1987 says that at least 500 people had been killed with 49 injured with a total of uh, 610 beast attacks. Jeez. And uh, 98 of those people having been only partially consumed. Yeah. And the, here's the other thing. It's preying on mostly women and children. It almost never attacks men. To start. Mm. Yeah. It, but it's it's not. And here's the thing we want to keep in mind is that, yeah, it starts off like uh, what we would know about the behavior of a wild animal or wolf. But as we said, it's not all matching up. Like the predatory behavior of a canine yeah, they go for your neck usually, but it's it's just killing for sport, it seems like. Like, there's something, and that's what's terrifying the people. They can deal with wolf attacks. They have in the region for, for generations. Uh, they can deal with uh, other animal attacks uh, or 
just the treachery of and danger of living and in the woods and you know living an agrarian lifestyle. But this is something different. That's why this beast is terrifying everybody because this is something new and it's horrific. Uh, so Scott, you want to talk about where this uh, region is? Uh, yeah, I guess we can talk about like Gévaudan. It's it's in a province in France, and I'm going to quote uh, Lorraine Bolsonaro here. This was like a Smithsonian uh, article that we had referred to when we when we first did our show on this. She describes this setting as as being like a setting for a grim fairy tale, and then you've got this monster in here that's like a supernatural monster. She said again, you know, we've talked about the number of victims and everything that's going on and she had indicated that it's very idyllic and quiet and and remote so this is a very uh, upsetting thing going on at the time and then when you talk about the appearance of the animal that's the other thing it was very very large in size as Forrest said uh, between a calf and a horse had reddish gray hair uh, that comes up over and over really large sharp teeth and a massive tail and it supposedly had a black stripe running down its back and talons on its feet and it was an ambush hunter. And uh, the wounds that were found on the bodies were typically found on the heads and limbs. And supposedly up to 16 of its victims were decapitated. Wow. And again, coming back to what Forrest had said, they, it, it does seem to be killing for sport. There's not a consumption going on. There's, it's not consuming the meat afterwards. It's just killing for fun. And that's another thing that's freaking people out about it. Which would insinuate that it's got intelligence as well then. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because uh, it was able to evade large experienced hunters and, and woodsmen who hunt wolves for a living. Uh, it was able to evade patrolling bands of soldiers and peasants yes. who were armed. It seemed to know where they were going to show up. And, and where they put traps tease. out as well. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it, it couldn't be fooled. It says, uh, just kind of doing a little bit of, of, of research here, that the first time it was uh, recorded as, a, as an attack was was a young woman who was herding bulls and the mm -hmm. bulls in the, or sorry, herding cows and the bulls in the herd kept the beast at bay. Yeah, they formed a circle around her and wow. they defended her, which is really cool. And it's funny because I've since then I've noticed this uh, behavior. You'll see on Reddit or YouTube sometimes this behavior of a flock protecting its shepherd. And that seems to be going on here in that main version of that story, which I think is probably there's two versions of that story, which is interesting. There's the first one where they cir encircled her and protected her and she came back and her clothes were all tattered. And a lot of people at that point might have said, okay, you're making this up, something weird happened or whatever, if there hadn't been an ongoing series of attacks for years after that, because there wasn't a lot of other evidence. There's another version of that story that says she had a spear and she fought it off and she plunged the spear into it. And there's actually a statue of her doing this in France somewhere uh, that it's like this amazing uh, image of her plunging this spear into it. But both of those go back to that being theoretically one of the first accounts uh, before the attacks uh, went on and on and on. And they just started turning up all over the countryside. And like Forrest said, uh, geographically, it didn't always make sense because the creature would have had to travel impossible distances to to make all the attacks happen. And and coming back to when he mentioned the military, there was a, uh, what was he, Captain? I can't remember for us, Duhamel? He was Captain, uh, du, I think. Yeah, Captain Duhamel. Uh, you yeah. know, basically, they, they had to stop this thing. I mean, people were seeing it, and uh, in kind of a more a better description of this beast uh, from the eyewitnesses that, it, yeah, it sounds like a wolf, but so many people had seen this thing by now, they knew it wasn't a wolf. And, and there's another great uh, website uh, uh, 
by a man in France. I don't think it's active anymore, but it was a whole layout of the story in French, and so we, we got the English translation. But uh, that website, I think, uh, Scott, is Labette uh, du... Uh, en, which uh, you can still get to on the Wayback Machine, I think. But yeah, the main site is down now. Yeah. Right. But he has a lot of great descriptions here that uh, were translated from the accounts of the time. And, and I just to read one here, it says, uh, it was sure now that the beast was not a wolf. Too many people had seen it and gave the same description. It was a fantastic animal, size of a calf or a donkey. It had reddish hair, a large head similar to a pig. The mouth was always gaping. Uh, it was short and perched ears, uh, it had white and large breast. Uh, some say the, the size of a, uh, uh, I think of a lion. And uh, a long, white-tipped tail. And some said that its hind legs were those of a horse. That's freaky. It also was described as having talons like a lion. So uh, this, but most of these elements of this description seem to keep coming back from the eyewitnesses. But also, just quickly, there was another, or, or, or a few of them where the tail had a tassel on it, mm. but they didn't all say that. And a tail with a tassel right. does make you think of a lion, because they have that little puff on the end, right? Right, <laughs> so, right, 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 right. Yeah, right. so, but, but a lot of other stuff doesn't match with lion. They do feel like most of those other descriptions describe it as being more canine, especially it's always having its mouth open and, and that sort of thing. Well, once again, though, I, I might be wrong about this but i don't recall ever hearing you know packs of lions roaming around the french countryside yeah exactly you know (laughs) if if it was a lion it you know what the hell was it doing there right well that's and that's one of the theories is that there was a you know they had these menageries that that traveling circuses that had all the Mm. animals in them and that that you know that wasn't there a train crash forest i can't remember where they had said like yeah roughly in the region that you know the train crash and some animals got away maybe this was some like rogue You know, and lion to your, or your point like about that. yeah later descriptions, people would say like, well, the, you know, the, the the peasants certainly would have known about lions, and they would have seen illustrations, but not many. So it, it, if they saw something like that, uh, it was uh, it still might have been fantastical to them and very hard to describe. Uh, but again, I'd say that uh, you know that still looks like a big cat, and they certainly know what cats look like. So. Yeah. This is something, all these weird elements to it does seem to me to be like some kind of a hybrid animal, if not a full-on uh, cryptid of sorts. But then how the story starts off really is, as you were saying, Chris, it, uh, there was a first incident. So according to some reports, uh, like the one you just mentioned here, the first known attack was on a young woman, and her name was Marie-Jean Vallée. And yeah, she was attending a herd of oxen in 1764. So... The parts of that story either go that uh, her dogs ran off, so she was stuck by herself, but the bulls formed a like a phalanx and guarded her, and the beast lunged at the bulls, but they, they stood fast, uh, fought it off, it lunged again, and they, they still held their ground, and it drove it off again. And that may not have been the first attack, because uh, there's another one that, that says uh, it happened August 11th in 1765. So when it occurred, though, that was the first notification and first description from a survivor of this thing. Well, but what seems to be an agreement is when the beast killed its first victim, and that would be in June of 1764, when a 14-year-old shepherd girl named Jean Boulet, she was killed tending her flock uh, near the village of Saint-Antienne-Lugardère. And uh, after that, there were other victims soon piling up here, mostly women and children at first. A 15-year-old girl was killed a month later 
uh, in another village. And before she died, she was able to describe it as a horrible beast. So you start getting a lot of cases being described. And of course, people are gossiping and, and they're, they're scared out of their wits. But this is something to keep in mind here. With all of these reports at the time, they don't seem to mention that the livestock was really attacked at all, at least not for food by like a regular predator, if at all. So it seems this beast really was after the people. Mm. And as we said, uh, although some of the victims were partially eaten, it doesn't seem like it was out to feed, just kill. So I want to talk about kind of the royal involvement here. I believe it was Louis Louis XV was the king. And talk about kind of how he got involved and what he wanted to do to try and put a, put a stop to this. Yeah, he so he, he wanted to, he got these troops together. It was 30,000 troops, I believe, that he sent to the area Jeez. to... Yeah, and 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 Forrest, you could talk a little bit about the history, the the war history. So this is would be 1764, and the Seven Years' War, which had uh, lasted from 1756 to 1763, uh, that was a global conflict that really uh, tore up France. It it uh, it left it in a very dire uh, financial state. France had suffered uh, big defeats with Britain. And uh, it lost a, a, a major uh, Canadian territory. And so King Louis XV, uh, you know, losing all these territories and colonial possessions, uh, this put France in a, you know, a depressive state. And so the climate at the time would suggest that uh, when this story started to hit the papers or, or the paper and it made its way back to the royal court, it was something that the king could see to rally the people, boost their spirits, get everyone right. motivated against at least a, an enemy they could defeat or they thought they could. Right. They were needing a morale boost. Yeah, it's a common foe uh, and they needed a morale boost. Exactly. So so it probably explains why the story was sensationalized back in the day. And But keep in mind, even though that some of these details were obviously exaggerated about the beast, there's no denying that a lot of people uh, were being viciously attacked. And that's a recorded fact. So there was a newspaper that uh, it was called uh, Fait d'Hiver. And the day it was kind of like the first instance of true crime reporting, because you have to realize also that the king was censoring a lot of information about how th bad things were in the country. Uh, so people had to turn to these other forms of reporting to get their facts and, and other stories just to kind of take their, their minds off of how terrible things were. And it became like the crime blotter of the day. So that's where this story kind of blew up and you know, there's a new national sensationalism that went along with it. So then, uh, now with this really combined effort uh, from the government and the king and the local people to, uh, you know, they're crying out like, you've got to do something. And he's like, okay, let's let's organize this. Let's, let's get a force going. So the first organized hunt takes place uh, when a local government official uh, named Etienne Lafont uh, and a captain of the infantry, as we said, Jean-Baptiste Duhamel, gets together a force that at, at its peak, they think it averaged 30,000 men. So he arranged it though as a military organization, as a, a military campaign. And what he did was he did he tried to go about it very methodically. They left poison along the trails. Uh, he even dressed some of his soldiers as peasant women. Uh, if this yeah, thing because it was only attacking women. So they so the soldiers are now out here with their weapons and dresses trying to get attacked by this. Wow. Thing. Yeah, it's it, whatever they could do. I mean, they're at their wits end. But he went about it like a military uh, a campaign or operation. And uh, there was a giant reward. So uh, according to uh, one author, uh, 
uh, Jean-Marc Morisot, they said that the reward was equal to a year's salary. 6,000 livres, I believe it was. 6,000 livres, wow. Yeah, and then the, the other thing that was happening was the... Um, the the English, of course, are making fun of France for not being able to stop this thing. And really? they, 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 there was someone that had said, yeah, 30,000 30, soldiers couldn't catch it, but then it was caught by a kitten, you know, just really driving it home. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, well, yeah. So that's another reason to, uh, to have a victory on their hands. But yeah. Yes. So there's a massive reward that for any working man's salary would be uh, a, a year's wages. Uh, so that was a great incentive. But you have to also realize what it was doing to the people. And the, the mood at the time uh, is described in that website saying that, uh, you know, the, the streets were abandoned. People weren't going to work. They never went out alone. They never went out unarmed. Around 1,200 peasants under Captain Dumel uh, were armed with shotguns and spears, sticks, scythes, anything they could grab. And uh, they would go in uh, beats, as they say, of, uh, of eight and tour the countryside in shifts so that there was always somebody uh, or group of uh, men looking for this thing. And uh, the, the town criers would uh, organize people. It was a real operation to get everybody involved. And of course, nobody wants to do anything or go out alone until this thing is stopped. So everyone's terrified. Uh, and uh, you have some also political intrigue about who's going to, who's going to actually capture this thing, who's going to get the glory for this. Uh, there's uh, religious turmoil with the Catholics and the Jesuits and, uh, you know, the, the Jainsists at the time. So there's a lot of turmoil going on anyway. And then this thing's all sensationalized by uh, the newspapers of the time. And the, on top of that, the peasants weren't allowed to hunt on the land. They, only royals could hunt on the land. So the peasants oh, wow. weren't even allowed to go after this thing. Yeah. Really? But they're, they're, yeah. yeah. But you, you, you'll like this story, Chris. There, there are great stories that came out of this, not only of uh, heroism, but there's one that sounded like 1700s uh, Goonies story in that <laughs> a group of kids managed to fight oh, yeah. off this beast. And so this also ended up in the true crime uh, blotter of the time. Uh, a young boy named Jacques Portefeuille, uh, on January 12th, 1765, he was with seven other children who were tending cattle. Of course, you have to realize that kids worked back then out in the right. fields. And when they're in the meadow, this beast came at them, attacking them several times, but they banded together. So uh, as it's described uh, in the uh, the French website here, uh, a shepherd boy, 12 years old, named Portefeuille, uh, was out attending cattle in the mountains. And he had four friends with him and two little girls, and the rest were boys. Uh, they armed themselves with sticks, and which had iron points on them. So like cruelly fashioned spears. And basically, also, here's the other thing about this beast. People say it, they never noticed it stalking. It just appeared. It just kind of showed up or came out of the brush. And uh, that's how it surprised people. Uh, so Jacques Portefeuille, the leader of the, boy, uh, the leader of the children, he gathers the strongest kids in front to protect the, uh, the littler kids. <laughs> yeah. This is Sparta. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's like quick thinking. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. I would have ran away with my kids, but, but basically yeah. this, this thing starts to, to circle them and its mouth is frothing and uh, these courageous children hold it together. They, uh, they basically put their sticks up like, like a Roman phalanx. This beast lunges at them. And he grabs an eight-year-old by the throat. He takes him away. Uh, but basically the kids just start stabbing it and uh, they get it to drop the kid. 
and this kid was a had part of his cheek torn off. Wow! And the the beast, you know, swallows it. It's yeah. It's these are really gruesome stories. Yeah, and I think this is isn't this famously where Jacques, you know, later he's telling a story. He was like, I was, or he, or the other kid said he said he was either going to rescue his friend or die trying. Hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, he said to, <laughs> so, he declares that they will save their friend's life or they will all perish. Yeah, and they all follow him and. Uh, you know they're just they're 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 torn up and and uh, ripped up, but they just keep stabbing the beast and they try to they get him in the eyes. They try to rip his tongue out, uh, and then basically after several minutes, uh, you know the the beast was like, okay, that's <laughs> you kids win. I'm out of here, and it leaves. But the tale of this miraculous feat reaches the bishop of Mende, uh, who then tells the king, and the king decides that he's going to give each of the seven little peasants. Uh, 300 pounds of reward and that uh, Portefeuille, he would be uh, raised by the state and given an education. And so all the newspapers across France ran with this story and he became an immediate hero and he's legend today connected to this story. So as as the story moves on, how long is this going on? Months? Years? Years. Years. Three years? Three or four years, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. So. Four, four years uh, roughly and, uh, you know, Again, people would, uh, nothing was happening. That's the thing. After a few years, you think that somebody would have some success. So uh, Captain Duhamel, you know, he did his best, but he just wasn't successful. Uh, also, he had trouble coordinating the, the peasants with the military because nobody wanted to work together. So uh, eventually uh, he stands down and then Louis XV sends in two professional wolf hunters uh, from Normandy, uh, oh, yeah. father and son team, uh, Jean-Charles, Marc, Antoine, Boy, there's like five names. I didn't here. know you were going to try that guy. Yeah, <laughs> this is a, the the uh, father's son named Deneval. Yeah. yeah, so Jean Francois <laughs> with his son, and uh, they showed up and they began uh, taking a different tactic, which is stalking the beast with their usual wolf hunting techniques. And uh, they were using more stealthy techniques rather than just marching guys out into the brush. Uh, so yeah, so basically they're trying to hunt it like it was a regular animal, like they usually did. Jean Charles, the father, uh, he claimed he killed 1,200 wolves in his career. Mm. Uh, and he believed that this was, this was a Eurasian wolf, and that's how he hunted it. So he used bloodhounds to track them. Uh, but after four months of no luck, uh, he had to call it a day. And, and by this time, those closest to the encounters were not even sure it was a wolf. So they were doubting his his reports or his thinking in that after this amount of time, this, these many reports coming back, it's not sounding like a wolf. So... Uh, back to that government delegate, Etienne Lafont, you know, he reported that it, it was maybe something like a hyena. That's another prevailing theory is that uh, they knew what those were. And by the weird uh, coloration and the fur and kind of the viciousness that maybe it was something like that. Yeah, the stripe, the mouth always open because the hyenas, they're always like the mouth is open when they're hanging out. So Right. It's it's so basically yeah. It, Captain Duhamel described it as uh, it, its chest uh, was as wide as a horse's. Uh, its body was long as a leopard's. It, it its fur was red with a black stripe, uh, and he thought it was a cross between a lion and some other unknown creature. But it, he's it seemed more lion like to him. Uh, and then by June of 1765, the king sent his uh, his personal bodyguard, uh, France Francois Antoine. King Lieutenant of the Hunt to uh, basically go take over and see what he could do. And, and here's, oh, I want to include this other thing because this starts to sound like a skinwalker or Mothman, actually, in that people said they could see fire in its eyes. Oh, yeah. Like maybe it had red glowing eyes and it could repel bullets, walk on its hind feet. 
People had shot it several times. It came back to life several times and had amazing leaping ability. Now, wow. of course, you could say they're just exaggerating. They're scared. They're they're trying to get more help, so they're you know they're creating uh, exaggerated stories. But it sounds a lot like things we hear about modern day cryptids, uh, like Mothman and and everything else that has glowing red eyes. So again, those details make us wonder what's really going on here. What was this thing? Yeah, there was there was one guy that had an encounter. He saw it at night in town, and he had a shotgun. He was scared to death, but he got up and he shot it with the shotgun. It definitely hit it. It recoiled, but then it got back up. He shot it again two times with the shotgun, and eventually it, it made a howling noise and took off. But that's just one time. You know, it's been stabbed in the chest with a spear. It's been shot over and over with shotguns, and it always it always comes back. Right. Once again, that, that would lend to the theory that maybe there was more than one of them, perhaps? Would. It would. But they were never seen at the same time. At the same that's time, right. Right, right. Yeah, so right. that's the question about that. Well, there's almost a Jaws moment in here, too, though, um, <laughs> where they capture what they think is is the beast, but it doesn't quite turn out that way. Yeah, exactly. So that would be Francois Antoine and his son, as we talked about. Uh, the Wolf Hunters. Yes, yes, the Wolf Hunters. So they actually did kill a beast on September 20th uh, or 21st of 1765. Yeah. It was a very large gray wolf weighing about uh, 130 pounds, 60 kilograms. And it was about 31 inches tall, uh, about five feet, seven inches long. So very big wolf, uh, because generally speaking, a, a male wolf averages about 88 pounds. Right. Uh, and about 30, 33 inches long. So it's larger than average, but not that much larger than average. And here's the deal, though, which is interesting, is that some of these survivors of these attacks said that the scars on this beast match the ones that they saw or inflicted hmm. on the beast when they were defending themselves against it. Uh, so uh, there are reports, though, that this wolf was then stuffed and transported to the court at Versailles. Uh, but by the time it had arrived there, it was decomposed so badly, uh, they basically just buried it before really examining it. So Yeah, yeah and they also didn't pay their reward, I think. Or was that yeah. Chastel? I can't remember now. Yeah, but they, yeah, they just buried it. There's definitely a thing that happens here where they keep getting killed and it's ah, Tyler, it's over. We've done it. It's dead. And it's like, this is happening over. That's it. Nope. It's that one. No, wait. It's the one that we did take to mm. Versailles, but it got buried right away because they right. keep, they want to keep wrapping it up, I think, for, you know, for to save sure. space, but also, also to put the people at ease and how can this thing live forever? And you get into all that speculation. It's like, oh, it's a rabbit. It was a rabid canine. And, you know, we did some research on rabies when we were looking into this. Uh, rabies plays out pretty quickly. Uh, when you, when the animal gets rabies, it's gone in two weeks. And it's it, and there's only a there's one phase of it called the furious phase when they're completely like completely insane. And that's when you have to worry about them attacking and, and not to the point of these attacks, not attacking for food, just attacking for the hell of it. But the, the this went on for years and years and years. The, if an animal, if a wolf like a large wolf had caught rabies, this would have happened for a few days and then it would have died. So yeah. Yeah. that's another thing, another observation to make there. Well, I mean, so it seems like uh, we're coming to a point. It's it's funny, Chris, you mentioned that because I was thinking a lot about Jaws and Quint because there's a Quint yeah, uh, right. like character yeah. coming up here. But before that happens, uh, the way that this section of the story resolves is that uh, the uh, Antoine's uh, Antoine, basically the father, uh, he stays behind in the woods while the son travels to the king's court to receive the accolades and the and the reward because he's thinking that there's a female wolf uh, with two pups. 
that are left behind. And he thought that the pups, or at least that's what he claimed, were larger than uh, the the adults when they were fully grown. So he shot one pup, but the other one escaped, and it presumed uh, died of its injuries later. Uh, and uh, Antoine, his son, eventually received this huge cash reward from Louis the Fifteenth of over nine thousand livres, jeez, uh, and and awards and titles. But <laughs> then, just two months later, on December second, two boys, aged six and twelve, were attacked, and it seemed that the beast was back as it tried to take off with a six-year-old. Uh, but the older boy was able to fight it off. Uh, I love these brave kids. You know, they, I know. Just, Jeez, thank goodness. Yeah, for the they kids. are the warriors. They are yeah. the warriors here. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, hey, you know, farm kids. <laughs> so, right. Uh, for another year and a half, the beast continued to terrorize the region, with another thirty to thirty-five killings taking place. Jeez. So uh, here's the other weird thing: is that the the farmers, the shepherds, were were saying that this thing was fearless around the cattle and. Like we said with the bulls, uh, you know, it didn't stop them from attacking. So it's not really acting like an animal they know, even a predatory one. So, uh, but this time Louis the Fifteenth, he didn't step in. He just thought it was resolved. Like, okay, we did our part. Uh, it's all up to you guys. So, the killing spree uh, of this beast didn't really seem to stop until June nineteenth, seventeen sixty seven when a local farmer by the name of Jean Chastel shot and killed the beast, or a beast. Uh, on the slopes of Mont Moucher. Uh, and uh, this is what's funny. This is why it reminds me of uh, Robert Shaw, the, uh, whose character was Quint in Jaws. And yeah. that he was a, kind of a rough character, a real uh, man of the woods, plain spoken, maybe got into a little bit of trouble, which figures into some people thinking that perhaps he was faking the attacks or he had something to do with it. But uh, he was briefly imprisoned by Francois Antoine for leading the, the the military guys into a bog on purpose. Oh yeah, uh, so is <laughs> being the local guide just to kind of mess with them. And then it's, like, it's right over here, guys. It's right over yeah. here. Just straight. I saw it right there. Right, right, right. right. Well, they. Uh, so yeah, they didn't take to that kindly. But he was kind of a character. But but and, and maybe a little bit of a, a petty criminal. So. Uh, some theories, as we'll we'll see, that perhaps uh, this was a beast that maybe he raised or was letting loose on the population for his his own dastardly reasons. But uh, basically uh, what happens is that this last hunt here was organized by a, a local nobleman, uh, Marquis de Dapcher, and Jean Chastel shot it with a large caliber bullet combined with buckshot he'd made from him, that he made himself from silver. Does that sound familiar? Hmm, he shot the thing with a silver bullet that he said, said a prayer over, consecrated the bullets. That's according to him. Um, so that's another interesting twist. Why his bullets were more successful than other people who had shot it numerous times. Yeah. So uh, it could have been just a large caliber shot in the right place. Uh, nobody knows at this point, but uh, they think he was successful because he was he was leading the local hunt uh, with local farmers and hunters. So they knew the landscape. They knew how to track this thing. Uh, he was able to deal better with the farmers and the shepherds who actually helped him out rather than uh, the uh, the military guys. So uh, he had a sworn account of everything that happened. And uh, it's really kind of funny to um, uh, to think about it. I'll, I'll read a little bit from it here just because of the uh, the way that he describes how it was done because it does sound to me like Quint on board with you know, chewing his toothpick <laughs> And uh, standing there with his uh, harpoon gun. So here's uh, here's how it happened, according to the reports. On June 19th, 1767, 
they had gathered and organized a large group to hunt the beast. Uh, one of the hunters was Jean Chastel. He's 60 years old at the time. And it, he was a solid and religious man, it says here. Uh, so everybody, and everybody knew that guy. As Quint says, it's like, you all know me. You know what I do. That's exactly what people thought of him. And so he stationed himself uh, in front of, um, uh, I, I think, uh, the Saunier Alvert. I'm not sure what that is, but he... He, he had a shotgun with him and two consecrated bullets uh, with a buckshot. And as he was saying his rosary, uh, the beast appeared, the real one. Calmly, he closes his rosary. He puts it in his pocket. He takes off his glasses, puts them in a case. The beast does not move. It waits. Chastel shoulders his weapon, aims, shoots. The beast stands still. The dogs run up to it, uh, knock it down, start ripping it up. Uh, it's dead. But its body, loaded on a horse, is then carried to the castle at uh, Besquet. And uh, they think it, uh, it is not a wolf. It's some kind of beast. Its ears, its hugeness of its mouth, indicated a monster of unknown origin. Its innards, one finds the shoulder of a young girl, probably the one that had been devoured two days before. Wow. So uh, they put this thing in a box. It travels uh, with Jean Chastel to Versailles. And, uh, you know... There, there, they thought some of the uh, the more scientific minds of the day, the erudite, would kind of figure out what this thing was. But unfortunately, this trip takes place in August, and by the time they got there, this thing was so decayed and putrefied that uh, again, they just buried it right away. You're like, okay, you got it, get it out of here. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think Jostel, being a, a again like a quint character, he was kind of made fun of in court as being you know just a, a rough uh, bumpkin. And uh, he returns home, but he's lauded and praised in his village as a hero. And and today there are statues. To this day. Yeah. It's interesting, too, just as a quick segue. I was like, why didn't they put it on ice? Well, it's the 1700s. They don't have ice. <laughs> right. Like, duh, yeah. Right. Not, well, not it uh, not going to last that long. So they, they did. I mean, a smart thing would, I guess, if they could have stuffed it there and then maybe try to carry some of it back at least you'd have the the shape of it and the color right but, right, right, right. Uh, i i think they just thought like well let, let's hurry up to see if we can get there in time and and uh by the time nobody wanted to look at it plus they're just happy this thing's gone so well it's like you know speaking I, we know you're a fan of nessie it's like those fishermen that caught the what they thought was a oh, the dinosaur yeah. that might have been matching nessie and they had it on the ship and then they're like taking it into shopee and it was stinking so bad they dumped it back overboard before they got back to their port so crazy yeah, right? yeah. i remember that story uh that appeared in Omni magazine when I was a kid and uh I because I was so fascinated there's a photo of this thing it does look like it looks like a deep fried dinosaur and I remember the <laughs> the description is that it was a Japanese fishing a trawler they bring it up on uh on deck in a net I think and what happens this thing cracks open and what yeah. came out of it was just so disgusting the captain was like you're we're gonna ruin the whole catch just dump this thing overboard, and and that's what they did. But there was a a photo or two taken of it, and it does make you wonder with this thing. It makes you wonder what survives. April, oh yeah, April nineteen seventy seven. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Another thing, quickly, you're talking about Chastel. It said that he used vir- he he made the bullets out of Virgin Mary's metals, and yes. I just googled Virgin Mary's metals, and of course, like you said, they're all made of silver, which is very interesting and kind of the last little twist of of, of the myth here. Mm-hmm. So. As we start to kind of wind down on this, what was kind of the hypotheses, not just amongst the the, the, the noblemen at this point in time in the 1700s, 
What's the hypothesis now in 2021? And what do you guys think the uh, beast of Gévaudan was? Well, I, you know, there's a, there's a lot of theories that went around back then. Of course, the most prominent one was that it was some kind of wolf. Uh, it was canine, and uh, but not an unusual canine. We talked about the rabies already. There was the idea that it was a rabid wolf, but we've already shown how that couldn't have lasted over that timetable. There are right. other people that thought maybe, like we said, indicated earlier, it was a lion or something that escaped from a menagerie, possibly, and was uh, running rampant over there. And there are these crazy stories of, of lions doing that. If you've ever seen The Ghost in the Darkness, that was based on a true story. Um, there were lions, there, there are several stories of lions that were hunting just for the pleasure of it, uh, hunting humans just for the pleasure of it. But you would think that these people would have noticed that. And the, in the in the more modern theories, uh, folks still look back on it. And a, a lot of times they want to blame wolves. But there are, are lots of papers, and we talked about these in our episode on this that we did, that indicated that you know, wolf attacks actually aren't that frequent. They really aren't. And so they, they don't happen on uh, – they just don't follow this kind of behavior. And for us, I guess – and I don't know. Have you ever talked about Skinwalker Ranch on Talk is Jericho? No. Okay. You should get that one in your pipeline and find, find somebody to come on and talk Gee, about that. Yeah, I wonder who could talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Return it's guests, a, yeah. Scott and yeah. Forrest. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, that's one of the craziest stories that you know we've ever covered. We certainly don't own it. A lot of people have talked about it, but there were these large wolves involved in that story, but they were not, these were decidedly paranormal or supernatural creatures that were larger than cars, that were impervious to gunshots. Uh, they seemed to be able to appear and disappear almost teleport so we get into the, all those kinds of ideas and that's the angle of our show we you know one of our catchphrases is if you believe any of this at all is there a supernatural component to this because this this creature if it's one creature it defies it defies most of the explanations and it does seem like you know eventually the attacks stopped but when you look at the history of all the things they killed and said it was it it doesn't seem like it stopped because the humans stopped it it seemed like it stopped because it stopped on its own it for whatever reason whether it passed away or moved on or whatever mm. i mean what would you add to that Forrest? well i mean there's a of course there are a handful of mundane explanations or you know logical explanations and you should look at them we all should uh, and consider everything. That's kind of our tack on our show. Just look at everything. Uh, don't throw anything out because you think it's silly. But there's some pretty uh, far out explanations for the uh, the Beast of Jevoudan. One is that it was a serial killer dressed as a wolf. Uh, as we were talking earlier about uh, Jean Chastel, people thought that he somehow bred a dog hybrid and then he covered yes. it in boar's hide, uh, which would explain the weird coloring, but also it being impervious or kind of like a bulletproof vest for a dog, uh, you know, because it's very tough, that that's what was repelling the, the musket they're balls. Saying, they're saying that the dog is wearing a suit of boar armor? Yeah. Uh, boar's it's hide, a, yes. Well, that yeah. makes no sense. <laughs> well, no. That, and that no. is a modern, that's a, one of the more modern uh, hypotheses. Have you ever tried to put a Halloween costume on a dog? <laughs> yeah. <It'll, laughs> yeah. It, it, it squirms its way out of it in about three yeah. seconds. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's it, right. Uh, well, see, now, because people are including the character of the people in this story, because you, and I got to understand this, because you can't go and, and, analyze the character of the creature. We only know uh, what it did uh, from its behavior. We don't have anything to study nowadays. Uh, certainly nothing genetic we could study. Right. So all you have is the character of the people involved. And we see this a lot with our stories is that they, you can't attack the phenomenon. So you, you attack the people 
telling the story. And here, they thought, as we said earlier, it was maybe Jean Chastel did this to hide his other crimes and that it would cause such a diversion. Now the town's, no one's going out. He could steal whatever he wants. That's one theory. It's a cover-up. Yeah, yeah, it's a big cover-up. Oh, and I just, uh, quickly, I did want to, I meant to pull this up a minute ago, but the, the Maneaters of Mjamba in uh, Tanzania from 1932 to 1947, these were, uh, I think, a pair of lines, it was more than one, killed 1,500 people. Yeah. Wow. 1,500 people. And the Savo Maneaters, that's, let's see, that's the 140 workers, apocryphally, probably closer to 35. Those are the ones that The Ghost in the Darkness was uh, based on that movie. Right, right. Well, I, I mean, and, and then the other one that is we were, we were talking at the beginning of the show that you mentioned yourself, Chris, is that uh, if you start to look at uh, these people as, I guess, simple folk being duped, uh, one common theory nowadays is that it was mass psychogenic illness, is what they used to call mass hysteria. And that one person tells a crazy story, that just gets out of hand. Now people are seeing things that aren't really there, or uh, somebody gets attacked by a wolf, but now it's a crazy wolf the size of a of a calf or a donkey. Uh, and that it's a, uh, it's a, yeah, a mass illusion and hysteria built up around one or a few incidents, but nothing like what they're really experiencing. So that's that is uh, what uh, some people are thinking, and that there's nothing supernatural in origin. It's just um, maybe some kind of animal that exists nowadays. And it's like, as, as Scott said earlier, it's uh, the North American Wood Ape Society believe that uh, Bigfoot is just a, uh, uh, you know, it's an extant ape of some kind living in the woods of North America. And uh, this goes for every other cryptid out there that uh, the Loch Ness Monster, I think one of your favorite cryptids, it's just a prehistoric uh, species that it somehow survived. And and so maybe this also uh, is some kind of animal like a dire wolf that, uh, Scott, I think that uh, those are thought to have died out about 7,000 years ago. Uh, 9,500 years ago, 95, they're thinking okay. is. Yeah. There are, they yeah. found 400, over 400 skulls of dire wolves in the La Brea Tar Pits. They have them on display in L.A. Yeah. Right, right. So so you have to keep in mind, there's conclusions, uh, you know, about everything you can think of, but none of them have zero, uh, give any zero credence to any explanation other than something like uh, hysteria. And, and another, another one, too, if you want to get a little bit out there, but this is, you know, Astonishing Legends is... It would suggest a perfect example of a, of a, of a werewolf, of a lycanthrop, because if yeah. you're seeing that it's going over a you know three year period and it's appearing and disappearing, obviously, you know, I don't know if these killings all took place during a full moon or if that even matters. If you know if this was some kind of a werewolf, that would be a perfect way for it to be able to escape. Uh, as well. Yeah, I'm actually just about to uh, to talk about the notes here in that there is a, a French legend uh, tied in with the Beast of Gévaudan that is more uh, closely associated with uh, a legend from Margeride in, in the mountains there uh, that ties in uh, with the Beast of Gévaudan and that uh, during, the, uh, during World War II, that area of Margeride was uh, heavily occupied by the, the French resistance fighting the Germans. They worked with uh, reinforcing uh, and helping out with the D-Day landings. And so there's a lot of, uh, I guess, legend and heroism tied with uh, this region here. But they also believe that, that there's a, they believe that there's a legend that takes on a wolf or werewolf-like aspect to it. And that uh, this creature was more like a... Lar- a large wolf and 
was basically possessed by a very very powerful or demonic-like spirit, and that a normal man or woman, a human, uh, their bodies can be possessed by the spirit of the beast of Jebudan by drinking the water out of the footprint of a wolf. And they must drink the water straight off the ground during a full moon. And then once the the beast takes possession of this person's body, their memory blanks out. They lose time. They can't account for uh, where they've been or what they've been doing. Uh, they go into a fugue state. They suffer aggression, confusion, delusions, hallucinations. Uh, and so the, the, the legend goes on that the beast of Jebudan was born out of a continued line of werewolves, where the male of each generation would have the wolf gene in their DNA, and during a blood moon, they would pass on the wolf power through a bite. And so the beast was uh, first thought to be, uh, the fable goes, the body of a man named Josiah Lu Silvre, and his sister was the one who killed him with a single spear made out of mountain ash and mistletoe. And the spirit of, it's, it's, it's classic <laughs> legend. I mean, yeah. this was... Um, uh, you, you could find this story in the uh, the Wikipedia entry for uh, Marjorie, if you look it up, and that uh, it goes on to say that this spirit is, it's, you know, one of the most powerful legends surviving in France. And when someone drinks the water from the print of this wolf and they become the beast, their person gradually ceases to exist. Their memories, everything about them is replaced by the essence of Josiah Lu Silvre, the original guy, and then there, his spirit still seeks vengeance on every hunter and every descendant of his sister, that bloodline of Lou Silvery. So uh, the name Silvery can translate to mean silver, which is what we're just talking about, silver bullets here. But they believe that it doesn't really kill the wolf, it just simply weakens it. Uh, so that's interesting there. And uh, everybody, uh, you're in trouble if you have the last family name of Silver, Silvery, Argent, uh, Silgent, and... Uh, his sister, Josiah, was also known as the maid of Jevoudan. That's that's also interesting and, and also ties in. back. Yeah. 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 So it's deeply embedded with, yeah, you can't forget werewolf lore. It's deeply embedded in this story, of course. But of course, no, no, no modern uh, sensible author is going to want to consider that aspect. Well, it's an amazing tale here and uh, great to uh, discuss this. And like every legend or truth and all of this, there is something that happened. So yeah. whether it's a werewolf or whether it's some kind of demonic creature, or whether it was some kind of a crazy giant dire wolf, hyena, lion from the menagerie, like you said, from the circus, the fact that, you know, a hundred people were killed by this is real and it's documented. And the beast of Jevaudan is legit. That's uh, right. <laughs> thank you, Scott and Forrest for uh, joining us here. And we have many more topics to discuss I want to do one about the Loch Ness Monster for sure. Oh, and bring, yeah. Uh, and bring Joe Sills here because he went to the banks and, and he has a lot to say as well. So plenty of future uh, topics that we can uh, get into. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having us on. The, the most astonishing legend today is that you got us to do one of our topics in an hour. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> We're a little bit more bite-sized here on Talk is Yeah, Jericho. that's it. Yeah. Punch good. him in Kept the body, moving. give him a, a, a facial <laughs> shot, we get the hell out of here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. All right, thanks hey, a lot. Thank man. you so much, Chris.